Hello and welcome to another episode of Despite the Challenges a show where we showcase amazing people who despite their impending circumstances and challenges not only turn their own lives around but they go out in the community doing amazing things today my guest is an author and a founder Kimmy Carlos Kimmy welcome to the show thank you Ritu happy to be here tell us a little bit about Kimmy Sure, I'm happy to. Um, well, as you said, I'm the founder of the Urban Mental Health Alliance, and I'm mm -hmm. the author of the book Window of Grace, Living in Recovery Through Christian Faith. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll talk a little bit about uh, my challenges uh, in line with the, the, um, the title of the show. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I am in recovery from addiction and alcoholism, have been in recovery for about 14 years now. Okay. Um, it was not until I came into recovery that I realized that I had lived pretty much my entire life with anxiety and depression disorder and really had spent a lot of years self-medicating. Um, oh, okay. A lot of that, I believe, mm -hmm. was hereditary because uh, addiction mm -hmm. and depression, anxiety do run in the family. And also, I think a lot of it stemmed from some childhood traumas that I sustained um, as a young child. Okay. So when I became um, sober and I um, started to really experience the symptoms of uh, depression and anxiety, it wasn't until mm -hmm. I was able to get those mental illnesses under control that I began to understand what mental illness was and how it affected our lives. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also had a child that at one point started talking suicide and that was enough oh, to scare sad. me to really start looking at what mental illness was and what addiction was. When did you, when did you find out that it is not just a normal behavior but it is an illness? Well, I went into uh, rehab in, I want to say late 2000. Mm -hmm. It was after um, the company that I was working for basically said, go to rehab or you're not going to have a job. And mm. even in my addiction, I knew that I needed to you know, maintain a, a career and be able to keep a roof over my children's head. So I, I really wanted to go ahead and do the recovery with every intention of making it through that period just so I could you know, get back to work and really not paying attention to getting healthy and, and going into recovery. I see. So, so I, it I, was a kind of in your mind that because this is sort of an compliance to keep your job. Exactly. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head with that. Really yeah. to just be in compliance. But at the mm. time, I really didn't understand addiction. I didn't mm. view alcoholism as an addiction. Um, I kind of grew up in a culture where as an adult, you know, if you decide mm -hmm. that you want to drink, you have the option of doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and which, in most cases, there's nothing wrong to doing uh, in moderation. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So um, distinguishing if it's a moderation or if it's an addiction. Absolutely. And I didn't yes. understand the difference between the two. Um, and when I came out of recovery, uh, I'm sorry, when I came out of rehab, it took me two years from the time I came out of rehab to really get sober. Because as soon as the depression came back, as soon as the panic attacks, and anxiety attacks would come back, I'd start drinking again because that was the only time that I didn't feel those symptoms. And it wasn't until I finally went to therapy, went to group therapy, went to support groups and began to learn about uh, mental illness. Okay. Um, and I was introduced to NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness of Mercer County, and be and found a home and a family there. And I was in a safe mm. place to really learn what mental illness is, yes. how it affects you, the psychological, social, and biological aspects of it, and realize that it's not a character defect, but it is no. indeed an illness. So the pieces start putting together. The pieces putting. started falling together. together. So I really started working at that point mm -hmm. on my sobriety. It was really important to me. Um, and I've started really becoming an advocate for addiction and mental illness awareness. Um, but what 
was even more um, uh, pressing for me, as I said earlier, is I had a child that started speaking suicide, and, and I had... Um, and how old? At, that, at, at the time, age? my daughter was about 16. Okay, so the teenage, that's pretty risky period anyway. Absolutely. Right. And so. um, one of the traumas I had sustained as a child, one of the traumas that me and my siblings had sustained as a child, was we lost a parent to suicide. Um, and it was shortly after the death of um, our mom that I fell into addiction. So I had been drinking your and doing mother, drugs since I was about 14. Your yes, mother my had mother. suicide. Right. Uh, she was... She died by suicide. By suicide, was yes. she addicted? No. Okay. No, my mother was not living with addiction. Uh -huh. I believe that she was living with undiagnosed bipolar, okay. which we have since learned also runs in the family on my mother's side. Okay. So knowing what I know about bipolar now and remembering a lot of the experiences of our mother, I, that I, that's my suspicion, but there was never a formal diagnosis that I know of. I see. I but it was see. a very traumatic experience on myself and my brother and the rest of the family when we lost I'm her because sure. it was very sudden. Mm -hmm. um, and you were how old at that time? I was 12. Oh, that's so tender. And my brother was that seven. Is very that is a very tender age. It really is. It's pretty much a child. It really is. Right. And people didn't discuss suicide, especially in the African-American community. You mm -hmm. know, people of color didn't have a lot of conversation around mental health, mental illness, you know, suicide, drug addiction. There was no discussion around any of that. And you have no place to go so to, to talk nobody, about it. Exactly. And nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to even mention it's, my mother's name. You know, is so, it because of the stigma of that? Because of the stigma, and also I think because just a lot of pain that family members really just didn't know how to how grapple to, with. You know, how to express it, how to express it, how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, and then you know, fast forward twenty some odd years later, and I have a child who's talking about suicide. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point that I said, "This cycle has to stop." So, age twelve, so and having a younger sibling, so that's a lot of like kind of. You feel responsible for the younger oh a huge sense of responsibility absolutely not just for my younger sibling but feeling responsible for my surviving family members you know which is irrational why a 12 year old would think that yes. but that's how i felt i felt so like it was kind of my job to you know keep everybody together and so i had to always be the good kid to make sure that we could keep peace because everybody was in so much pain and you know so carried a lot a lot you know as this a teenager and as a young woman you know, Something that just always amazes me that uh, people who who have such kind of circumstances, their inner strength to overcome and a drive that takes them on the other side. Right, right. <laughs> right? Incredible it's sense amazing. of resiliency. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And, and especially at that age, 12, 13, these are forming years where you want to be carefree and enjoy the world and adapt to Right. The environment what's around you. Right. How did that affect your education or anything else? Well, my it, believe it or not, it didn't affect my education so much. I always enjoyed school, so I wasn't a superior student, but I did very well. Mm -hmm. And I actually went on to college also. Mm -hmm. I was what you would call a functioning alcoholic. So I drank from the time I was 14 until I was in my early 30s when I went to rehab. So I'd say for, you know, close to, close to, the 20 years, a little more than 20 mm. years, you know, that I was in functioning alcoholism. Um, it wasn't until I got divorced that the alcoholism really got bad because now I'm really, you know, in crisis. Okay. Um, 
And as I said, it wasn't until, you know, my child started talking suicide that I really became an advocate because I knew that something needed to stop. I didn't want to see, you know, my daughter go through what I saw my mother go through. I didn't want her to go yes. through what I went through. And once I learned um, the high risk of alcoholism and addiction, you know, being mm -hmm. hereditary and passed down from generation to generation, I really wanted to break that cycle. Break cycle. So I spent the next several years as an addiction and mental health awareness advocate. Okay. That was when I wrote my book, The Window of Grace. Mm -hmm. um, spent a lot of years working with some phenomenal nonprofit organizations in and around Mercer County, sat on several boards, mm -hmm. um, sat on several multicultural outreach committees, worked with um, several other organizations to bring this awareness, you know, out into the community because it was something that people really weren't talking about. You know? Yes, and, and you make a very good point, you know, especially uh, in New Jersey, um, a lot of immigrant communities, um, Absolutely. minorities where there's a not a whole lot of outreach, but things have changed. Lot of organization doing such a great work, right? And you know the outreach as the problem uh, persists in society and becomes more known right. out there. Right. You find more programs and uh, right. How did how did you see um, this may have changed um, if those kinds of programs and outreach to minorities were available when you were facing? in your early teens? Absolutely, that's an excellent question. There was virtually nothing when I was in my early teens. And even as a young woman, there was nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and as I said, I did a lot of work you know, in the community around mental health. But what I found specifically was that there was a big disconnect in our urban communities um, where, you, where you largely have oh, okay. people of color and communities mm -hmm. that are impoverished. There's not a lot of conversation around mental health or addiction awareness. Um, and there's a lot of historical, social, and economic barriers and factors that affect those communities yes. that really make it hard to bring that awareness in-house. And I think there's a lot to do with stigma, too. Absolutely. When it comes to mental illness, and it's just not uh, um, uh, here in the United States, but around a lot of immigrants exactly who are here uh the mental illness is always a stigma absolutely right so mental illness is a stigma across um, all communities all races all faiths all ethnicities that, is true. that um, is true but each community has its own kind of cultural social factors why mm -hmm. they don't address it mm -hmm. and for me i was very passionate about the urban community i grew up in urban communities large part of my childhood mm -hmm. um, and I found that a lot of organizations while they were excellent in the work that they were doing addressing crisis and recovery there was not a lot of conversation in our urban areas around awareness and prevention I see and there was a philosophy so just, of yeah you can go to rehab get a treatment but there was no preventive Exactly. Uh, uh, exactly. Methods in place for that. Exactly. Okay. And there was also kind of a philosophy where if you build it, will come. And in an urban environment, that's not the philosophy that you have to have. You have to meet people where they are. Um, and a lot of urban areas, specifically, mm -hmm. you know, let's say Trenton, Jersey City, Elizabeth, Atlantic mm -hmm. City, Newark, you know, a lot of our mm -hmm. large urban communities in New Jersey, they're very um, secluded, um, oh. they're very insulated. And they're very distrusting for, for, for very valid reasons. That's a good point. So it's a matter right. of building relationships and meeting people where, where they, they are. are. And, and not only geographically 
uh, reaching out to those locations, but emotionally, emotionally, psychologically, psycholo spiritually. Yes. Yes. You, yes. Know, you speak highly of, of you speak um, uh, of immigrant populations. Well, just in Trenton alone, you have the Polish population, you mm -hmm. have the Caribbean population, you have the African population, you have the Latino Hispanic population. All language barriers, are, all mindsets, cultural, exactly, exactly. How do you break lot, those lot. those barriers? And then you have generations and generations and generations of people of color who have been in impoverished communities for for decades. For decades, that's what you they know. had known. So for them to kind of feel welcome. Exactly. And okay, it's okay uh, to have such and such problem. It's not you are not alone. Right. I think that's a, that's a very tough. Tough, uh, it is, uh, but I work. I found a remarkable thing, though. Ritu. Uh -huh. I started sharing my story. I went. Mm. I went to my father. Uh, I want to say two thousand eight, maybe two thousand nine, mm -hmm. and I said I need to start sharing my story. I need to start telling people what addiction is and what mental illness is and and how to get well. I said, but in order for me to tell my story, I need to tell mommy's story, and if I tell mommy's story, it's going to involve you. And I need your blessing, your permission. Okay. And he said, is this what God told you to do? And I said, yes. He said, I'm not going to stand in the way of that. So he, he, <laughs> he so gave me his blessing. Kind. So in other words, I want to just talk about a little bit. So 2008. So we're talking about maybe eight, 10 years ago. That you yes. And I hadn't been I sober for too long. Right. You know. so, so in other words, that he has progressed through some Remarkably. of his... Oh, remarkably. It, remarkably. To overcome traumatic uh, experience that absolutely. he may have gone through. Ab absolutely. And um, as, uh, when you have the opportunity to read my, mm -hmm. my story, you'll, you will learn a lot about mm -hmm. my background and you'll understand more why that was a really difficult challenge for my family mm -hmm. to be able to kind of embrace mental health awareness. Because when I first got clean and sober, my family didn't even want to talk about it. Don't tell anybody. Oh, you okay. went to rehab. Don't mention the word alcoholism. So you're absolutely right. It was uh -huh. um, a, a, a real growth process by the time for, for I came to my father. I think it was like six years later, you know. <laughs> How do they feel about it now? Um, well, now my parents, my, my dad and my stepmom, um, who has been in my life for like 30 years now, um, I think are incredibly proud of the progress that we've made as a family. As a family. And, um, and the work that we've done to bring awareness. Um, for me, you know, like I said, I worked with some really phenomenal organizations, but I found that disconnect with the urban environment, and that's really where my heart and my passion was. Uh -huh. um, because if you think in terms of a single mother, you know, who has three children, who's working two jobs, two jobs. and maybe she has a child that has attention deficit, or maybe she's dealing yeah. with depression, or maybe she has an older child who, you know, is dealing with an addiction, um, you can't say, well, if you can get on a bus and get to Princeton, we can help you. You know, yeah. you have to meet that mother where she is. Where she you is. have to meet yes. her in her home yes. or at her church or, or on her turf where she's going to be comfortable. And the incredible thing that I found is, as I said, you know, once I got my blessing from my dad mm. and I started talking, I started sharing my stories in churches. I started going to mm. social functions. I started going to meetings. I started really talking about my experience. I found that that was the gift and the purpose that I was able to bring to other people because other people. when someone who looks and talks like you. Stories connect. Right. It gives right. you permission Absolutely. to say, okay, maybe I can start talking about this too. It's just not you people who can 
connect themselves with your story. Absolutely. It gives them permission to go talk Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. Open up. <laughs> Absolutely. Seek help. And a lot so of times okay. that's what people are waiting for. Exactly. They're waiting for someone uh -huh. to say, it's okay. And so by me, um, you know, being able to stand up and talk about that, I found that it opened doors and it gave people permission to start talking. It gave people permission to say, oh, my family went through the same thing or, oh, I feel the same way. Right. You know, and if you can talk about it, I can yeah. talk about it. So you put some words to the feelings. Exactly. Right. And you give them sort of, hey, give yourself permission. It's okay. Right. You can heal. Exactly. And healing is, is the word. Healing and empowerment. Mm -hmm. um, so in 2013... Um, I got the vision to found the Urban Mental Health Alliance, and our mission is to bring addiction and mental health awareness to individuals and families, specifically in urban environments, mm -hmm. um, without any humiliation, stigma, or shame. Um, we're not interested in writing in, you know, and being a savior. We're interested in empowering individuals and families with knowledge and awareness and understanding mm -hmm. so they can advocate for themselves and their family members. Absolutely. So I always like to say, Think of it in terms of the American Heart Association. The American Heart Association advocates for a healthy heart mm -hmm. and teaches what heart disease and a heart attack looks like. Yes. Well, the Urban Mental Health Alliance does the exact same thing for mental health. So we advocate for mental health mm -hmm. and we teach what mental health crisis or mental illness looks like so that you're aware of it. Because it's, it's, it's an excellent idea to teach our clinicians and our healthcare professionals, our mental health professionals, um, but we also have to empower our individuals and families Absolutely. with knowledge so that they know how to advocate. This you know. is a very good analogy, you know, it's like uh, this is what heart uh, association does. Absolutely. Uh, healthy habits, healthy heart, Absolutely. Uh, what the illnesses are and right. same thing. So you kind of take that right. uh, stigma pressure out of the conversation. Right. 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 But in, but we do it in the context of the urban environment, which is so important because mm -hmm. there's unique factors in the urban environment that's different from anywhere. And when I mm -hmm. first founded the organization, the question I would get all the time is, well, what's the difference between mental health in the urban area and mental health anywhere else? Anywhere else. You know? Yes. That's well, a good question though. It's right? an excellent question. And I always get <laughs> so excited when people ask that question because if you think of your urban environment, especially your impoverished urban environments, you're looking at gang warfare, drug warfare, homelessness, subpar housing, broken educational systems, broken families, mass yes. incarceration, tensions between communities and law enforcement, nutritional deficiencies, and a whole host of a other host of oppressive other factors sure. that families are dealing with. Yes. Clearly, those are going to weigh on your mental health. So you have generations upon generations who are suffering in trauma, mm -hmm. who are suffering in anxiety disorder, who are suffering in borderline personality disorder, who are suffering in, in bipolar, who are suffering in depression because of a lot of these oppressive stressors that they're dealing and, with. And some of those symptoms are genetics. Uh, some of it's uh, genetics. Some of it's traumas passed down from generation Correct. to generation. Correct. A lot of it is self-medicating when it comes to addictions, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately in your urban environment, um, a lot of times before there's treatment, there's criminalization. So uh -huh. you're dealing with that factor as well. As there's a well. lot a of people who are make. ill who uh -huh. end up in prison because A, they're not aware of what a mental illness is, and B, they don't have the resources to advocate for themselves or their loved ones. So uh -huh. we believe in really educating people around mental illness. Again, the same way the American Heart Association never wants you to have a heart attack, we never want you to go into a mental health crisis. And so we want you to be aware of what oh, mental yeah. illness looks like, what symptoms are. And then we also teach positive mental health as well. Because what does positive mental health look like? 
Yeah. You know, I, I think it, it seems like that you have done so much groundwork to put it all together, right? Outstanding. Um, for my audience, I, I just want to ask you this question. So when you talk about urban, you explained very well. So what about if you're not uh, in an urban area, but mental illness is mental illness. So how right. do these people benefit for something which you're talking about, which you're sharing with them? So it's a common message for regardless of their urban and non-urban? That's an excellent question. And I have to, I have to be blatantly honest. <laughs> be. When we first founded the Urban Mental Health Alliance, uh -huh. I really had this vision that no one was gonna be interested and this is gonna stay right in the urban area. And I was okay with that. I've been amazed at how much outreach we've had, how many individuals, families, organizations have reached out to us around the country, across the state, to say, we really, really like what you're doing and we wanna learn more about the services wow. and resources you provide. And that just goes, speaks to the fact, validates the fact that, like you said, mental illness crosses all barriers, all color borders. lines, ethnicities. <laughs> and yes. I think um, one of the reasons we get so much interest from, from other audiences and populations, if you will, is because we work really hard to have um, a welcoming, inviting, non-judgmental um, environment. That's very, you know, that's you very much needed. It it's, really it's is. Really, because people already have so much on their shoulders. Right. They're carrying with the stigma and, right. and lack of knowledge. Well, imagine you're a person of color or you're an immigrant um, and you're living in an urban environment, you're already dealing with the stigma of being an immigrant or you're dealing with the stigma of this, being black or African-American or you're still with the, dealing with the stigma of being poor, you know, and so many other things. Or you're dealing with the stigma of being a drug addict. You're definitely not going to disclose that, I, that you think you're depressed or that you think you have anxiety or that you're dealing with domestic violence and you're suffering from post-traumatic stress I, disorder. I think in, in a lot of those cases that you just mentioned is... Um, the acceptance or denial, right? It could be both. They may not accept it. They might be in denial or that might be just a normal way it happens, things in the culture right. they grew up with. And, and so there's a lack of awareness. Lack of awareness. Of people, and they don't associate that with a mental illness. You are absolutely correct. Right? So that's correct. very common. Very common. Right. As I said earlier, I didn't, I didn't recognize my drinking as alcoholism. For me, that was normal to not be sober, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until it started really affecting my work that I said, hmm, maybe there's a problem here. You know, but prior to that, it was normal to not be sober from Friday night to Sunday night, you know. Mm -hmm. and it, was, it was normal to um, go to work and come home. And as long as I fed the kids and helped them with their homework, and then if I wanted to drink from 8 o'clock till 2 in the morning, I could do that. For me, that was normal because I was an adult and because alcohol was legal. But the only difference between an alcoholism and crack cocaine is that crack cocaine is illegal. If alcoholism had been illegal, I'd have probably been in the back alleys too. That was the only difference. Mm -hmm. So addiction is addiction. But for me, there was no awareness. For the mind to process that distinction, you know, when you're not processing uh, and uh, uh, that is legal or illegal, it's just the requirement. Absolutely. At that moment, right? Like air. 
when it's you're an addict, addict right? You know? <laughs> right. So um, let's talk about uh, the work that you are doing as outstanding. It's amazing. And uh, as you said, that so many other uh, organizations reaching out to, throughout the country and, right. you know, out of the state borderlines, et cetera, et cetera. Tell us that some of the, the educational programs that you have put together, how other communities are going to take them in their Sure. local communities and are making difference. Absolutely. I always get excited about talking about the Urban Mental Health Alliance. So we, I love to tell the story. We started in 2013. It was mm -hmm. only about five of us. I reached out to some colleagues of mine and said, you know, this is my vision. I want to build this nonprofit uh -huh. specifically for our urban environments. Let's put together a board of directors. Um, so we went from, this. Was, like I said, this was in 2013, and we went from five people. Mm -hmm. We now have our 501c3. We um, just had our second annual conference last October. Congratulations. At the Trenton YMCA. Thank you. Uh, we've developed a, a five-part workshop series. So okay. this will be the second year that we're presenting that. Mm -hmm. um, we have a board of 14 people that I'm extremely wow. proud of because I say our board is, is is the bravest board you know in the world. Oh, that's a they're, good good strength. Yeah, to have. They're right. discussing you know topics that nobody wants to talk about and dealing with populations that nobody mm -hmm. wants to deal with. You mm -hmm. know, and I give them tremendous credit. We have a lot of clinicians on the board, which is phenomenal because I'm not a clinician. I'm just an advocate. You know, mm -hmm. and I consider myself a you know a bit of a visionary. Um, so I surrounded myself with with the professionals who know the work, and that that they brought you know tremendous strength to the organization. So we have a five part workshop series called Healthy Minds in Our Community. Mm -hmm. What we found is that there needs to be a baseline understanding of mental health in urban environments. Okay. There's a lot of communities that don't talk mental health, that don't believe in mental health. They don't believe yes. that people of color um, deal with mental illness at all. They don't believe that people of color die by suicide. So it's hard to bring in a discussion on schizophrenia if you don't even have a first baseline understanding of what mental health is. Yes. So we created a five-part workshop series that teaches what mental health is. It looks at a lot of the stressors or oppressors in the urban environment and the connection between that and mental illness. Um, it talks about uh, stress management. It talks okay. about healthy advocating for yourself and your families. It talks about positive mental health practices and behaviors. And it looks at the biological and social aspect of what addiction is. Because in a lot of communities, addiction is just kind of accepted. Yes. You know. Yes, and it's um, just it's their problem right. at home. Exactly. So we created that workshop series last year. We mm -hmm. piloted it. It went very well. Uh, we received a $2,500 grant to kick it off more formal this year, so we're excited <laughs> about that. Um, as I said, we, we did our second annual conference last year. The first conference was in uh, 2014. No, I'm sorry, 2015. Mm -hmm. um, and then last year we did our second one. Our theme last year, our theme the first year was... Um, Freeing Your Mind, Breaking the Silence on Urban Mental Health. And last year, the theme was um, Trauma in the Urban Environment. Wow. And uh, that went Important. over really big. There was a lot of discussion around trauma because there's a lot of traumas in our urban so, environments that aren't recognized as trauma. Yes. You know, um, we're doing a discussion series this year. It's going to be a 12-month okay. series. It's all going to be social media-based. We're going to have mm -hmm. a lot of guest authors do some blogging, specifically on race, politics, and trauma. Okay. Trauma that comes out of of our political arena and our political infrastructures. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna again. This is not um, to jump into the political foray. It's more around looking at the mental health aspect of it and okay. how it's affected. You know, okay. when you have a politician that stands in the news and says we need law and order, well, people of color know what law and order means. You know, <laughs> and that's traumatizing. You know, yes. whenever. Well, yes. Uh, you know, it, it's very hard 
to to kind of associate the two. Um, uh, I get your point. Right. Um, question I have is every nonprofit, every organization, especially the nonprofit organization, the backbone of uh, such organization is volunteerism. And uh, as you said, that you have a good uh set of board of directors, which is great assets to have. Um, if your organization is looking for help, what kind of help that would be? We are always looking for volunteers. Um, and that's tricky when it comes to mental health. You need volunteers that are strong enough to be able to, to, to sustain workers, and, uh, right, to uh, sustain a lot of the, the calls that we get for service. I see. And to be able to constantly be in the mix around mental illness and understanding mental illness and dealing mm -hmm. with those issues. Um, we do really well with youth. We have a lot of youth that come through and want to help us with social media and outreach oh, wow. and getting the That's word out there, good. which is great. That's good. Um, right now, we would love to have a volunteer director of communications. Um, as the founder and the executive director, I do about 90% of that. <laughs> um, and I do have a full-time job, so my entire <laughs> life is... Is doing revolved around that, and I love it. I really do. Uh -huh. But I need to definitely bring in some more, you know, expertise yes. to help me kind of work on that. And I, I you hope know. people who are watching the show absolutely uh, would, you know, we would love to website. have you. <laughs> Please yes. contact us. We'd be thrilled to have a director. My last question. My last question. Uh, what the message you have for audience? Your message. My standard message that I give everybody when I teach. Um, when I preach, because I am a theologian, um, and when I talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, I always say, there is always hope. Never, ever, ever give up hope. There's always hope for recovery. Thank you, Kimmy. It was such a pleasure to have you on my show. It was a pleasure being here, Ruth. Yes. Thank you so much, and I hope the book blesses you. I, I definitely would love to read that, and uh, very soon. <laughs> okay. And this was another episode of Despite the Challenges. I am host Ritu Chopra. Until next time. <laughs>